This is the Disability Visibility Podcast with your host, Alice Wong. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Disability Visibility Podcast. Conversations on disability politics, culture, and media. I'm your host, Alice Wong. Today's episode is about accessibility with Shannon Finnegan, a multidisciplinary artist making work about disability culture and access. In 2018, Shannon received a Wade Newhouse Award and participated in Arts Beyond Sites Art and Disability Residency. Last year, she was a resident at IB. Shannon will share about what access means to her and her work as a disabled artist interrogating access and ableism. Please note we recorded this conversation in early 2019. Are you ready? Away we go! Five, four, three, two, one. So, Shannon, thank you so much for being on my podcast today. Oh, thank you for having me. It is, I'm a big fan, so it's really a pleasure to be here. Well, I'm a big fan of your work, too, and I want to thank uh, my friend Liz Jackson for telling me about your work. I think, Liz, I'd like, you should really check out Shannon Finnegan's artwork. It's amazing, and you know, <laughs> we all have like common kind of you know, loves and priorities toward, you know, expanding the idea of access and disability culture. And I was really just so blown away about uh, your work. Uh, would you like to uh, introduce yourself if you don't mind? Sure. Um, so I, I'm an artist um, and I work in a lot of different ways, um, kind of, depending on the project and the ideas. Um, but I feel like the kind of common thread that runs through a lot of my work is a focus on disability culture and accessibility and um, thinking, thinking about what those, what those things are and how we kind of approach them in, in nuance and um, varied ways. Mm-hmm. Great. And, uh, you know, today's episode is about accessibility, and this year you were named the 2019 IBEAM Access Resident. So, for the listeners who don't know what IBEAM is, could you describe that and then tell me a little bit about how is your residency going so far? So, IBEAM is an organization that um, kind of supports artists and technologists Um and so they're really at that kind of intersection of art and technology. Um, and each year their residency has a theme. And so my residency cohort is themed around access. Um, and I think thinking about that pretty broadly, um, but it's been really incredible. It's, it's an 11 month residency and I get access to studio space and I'm also, um, paid to participate in it. So it, it's allowed me kind of um, time time to focus on my work in a way that I haven't had before. 
And I know that, you know, when we see the word access, you know, it's used broadly, especially by non-disabled people. Yeah, you know, disabled people, when they say access, they have kind of like <laughs> a particular meaning very close to their, you know, uh, close to their lived experiences. So uh, I'm really curious about your, what you've learned from your fellow artists at this residency in terms of their conceptions of access, you know, compared to your, you know, ideas of access. Yeah, I think I'm someone who... Um, you know, I think it's hard to separate out access around disability from other systems of oppression. And so some of the artists in my cohort aren't necessarily thinking through a disability lens, but I feel pretty aligned with the, the type of work that they're doing um, and this kind of like more general approach of, about thinking about um, Who's, who's kind of like not in the room or who's not part of the conversation um, and and how can that be changed? So one example is um, a group called Movers and Shakers and they're using augmented reality to create digital public monuments that represent the voices of marginalized communities and kind of thinking about all of the gatekeeping around public monuments in different cities around the country and how... Um, Right, there's this idea of access around kind of like pushing back on those gatekeeping systems and also uh, creating access to kind of histories that don't um, get kind of focused on. Well, that sounds really interesting. Yeah, it is, it is really, yeah, there's a lot of great projects happening here. So if you don't mind me asking, I guess, uh, you know, how does access affect you personally throughout your own interactions in, uh, you know, built and social environments? Yeah, no, I think for me, um, a lot of my access needs are around kind of like standing, walking, moving, carrying things. Um, I need a lot of rest. Um you know, I experience pain when I'm walking and standing and um, so kind of also just navigating that. Um, another big one for me is is like knowing where the bathroom is, having it close by, not having to wait a long time to use the bathroom. Um, so, the, yeah, those are kind of the main things that are um, I'm kind of balancing and navigating when I'm thinking through access. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, a lot of people who advocate for access, you know, they're they're doing it because they believe in it, but also, you know, for many folks, they're not impacted personally by it. So what do you think are some of the nuances in terms of those who are, you know, advocating for access, but who are really, their lives are, you know, at stake because of it, in terms of the difference, in terms of how they approach and think about access and advocate for it. Um, First-hand experience with needing access, Mm -hmm. at least for me, has made it just so clear that um, access is always something that I'm paying attention to, that I feel a responsibility towards, because 
Um, I know even if my access needs are being met in a space, that doesn't mean that other people's access needs are being met. And I want to be part of, um, yeah, making making it as accessible as possible. And and I think I think also a lot about. Well, maybe this is a little bit of a different idea, but I, I mean, I've been thinking a lot about just as an artist, what my responsibility towards access is. And, you know, I have a lot to learn because like, as we know, kind of organizing across disabilities, like we, there's a lot we don't know even about each other. Um, and so I've been thinking a lot about that and, and just about how I don't want to I don't want to be part of something that disappoints other disabled people in ways that they've been kind of let down or disappointed before. Um, and so just trying to always ad advocate for um, as many layers and types of accessibility as possible um, in spaces that I, that I enter. You know, I do think that there a lot of ways, you know, the, the arts community isn't, you know, all that accessible for all kinds of people. You know, we talk about museums, we talk about galleries, we talk about, you know, public installations. Uh, what are some ways the arts community excludes disabled artists and, you know, the general public through inaccessible spaces, their behaviors? And their practices. Are there some things that you've you know, experienced uh, as an artist, uh, or things that you've observed? Yeah, I mean, it's really like there's just so many. <laughs> um, you know, I think the art arts communities, like many communities, is in a um, is doing at least some some places are are starting to do some learning around it. But there's there's a long a long way to go. Um, and I think sometimes I think about the accessibility that I want in the world. I think of it as a very long-term project. Um, I think kind of because of some of the things we were talking about in terms of the ways that different systems of oppression are, are intertwined. And so I really see accessibility as a very kind of radical project that's going to have to, um, yeah, change change a lot of different systems. But then I also look around in the arts community and I, I see all of these things that just feel so simple and easy. Um, and I'm just always surprised at how even those things aren't happening. One that I've been focused on a lot recently is benches in gallery spaces. Um, you know, it, it feels like, yeah, like we could have that tomorrow if we decided that was a priority. And I so often go to museums where there's just a couple benches and there's always tons of people on them. Um, and definitely for me, it's like, I need to rest as I'm moving through the space. It's, it's too much kind of standing and, and walking for me. And so, um, yeah, I just like things like that where I'm like, let's, let's do it now. <laughs> um, and, and, uh, yeah. Yeah, but I, I just, I think of it as, you know, there's, there's so many things in the art world in terms of economic barriers and um, other types of inaccessibility that I think are very wrapped up in um, accessibility for disabled people. 
Yeah, and I also wonder what you think about, you know, I think this is uh, really similar in other fields, but, you know, there's still a lot of disabled people who don't identify or just lose. Mm. So a lot of fields like, well, we don't have, you know, disabled people in our community, you know, or, you know, where, who are the disabled artists, you know, and I think, you know, at the same time, it's important to be visible, but, you know, on the flip side, it places a lot of the burden of not only just representation, but, you know, having to do a lot of this kind of free labor and education for folks who are like, oh, yeah. so like, you're the one disabled people I, person I know who's an artist like me, and then please educate me, you know? So, so have you dealt with that in terms of just you know, be really open about who you are, but also having to feel like, do you feel kind of alone or not alone? Yeah, I, I think a lot of, I definitely feel this with different um, institutions or organizations that I've interacted with where um, through their relationship with me, they think that like access will be taken care of, um, even if that's not, what I was brought in to do. Um, and that can be really frustrating. I think it's this really tricky balance where I think of disabled people as kind of the core audience for my work. And because lots of galleries and museums and exhibition spaces aren't thinking about accessibility, I feel like I need to kind of be proactive about making my work accessible. But at the same time, I don't want to take on accessibility in a way that like relieves a venue or an organization of their responsibility towards accessibility. Mm-hmm. And that, that I find is a very tricky thing, thing to balance. And, you know, you mentioned that most of your work is intended for a disabled audience. And have you received any pushback from that in terms of, oh, why are you being so narrow or why, you know, such a small fragment, shouldn't you be, you know, AB for everyone? Do mm. you have any responses? I have gotten that a little bit. Um I'm always surprised about when I get that reaction from non-disabled people because there's just so many things that are made for non-disabled people. Um, and so I'm always surprised when they feel kind of taken aback or, or entitled to the work that I'm making. Um, but my hope is that they're... You know, I think a lot of times non-disabled people have an experience of my work. It just might be more of an experience of being on the outside and looking in. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think my hope is that what they're kind of looking in on is this incredible and interesting community and that that makes them feel like it's something that they want to support and pay attention to and... Yeah, and related to that, I think, you know, thinking about the arts community and, you know, inaccessibility, uh, 
Can you tell me a little bit about a project of yours from 2017 called the Anti-Stairs Club Lounge? Because I think uh, I'd really love to hear the kind of origins of that. Yeah, so I, I mean, it's, it's really a project that came out of this kind of question of like, what do I do as a disabled artist who thinks of disabled people as a core part of my audience in an inaccessible exhibition space? So the, the Wasaic Project's exhibition space is this building called Max and Mills, and it's a, it used to be a grain elevator, so it's this very vertical space. It's seven floors. Um, and there's no ramp or elevator access above the ground floor. So they hold this big group exhibition of emerging artists every summer. There's usually about 50 artists. And I'd say about a third of the exhibition or maybe a quarter of the exhibition is on the ground floor. And then the rest of the work is upstairs. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I wanted to do something that kind of added to the space that, that created an experience for disabled visitors um, that was also just really clear about the inaccessibility of the space and the kind of limitations of that. Because I think a lot of people, a lot of non-disabled people come to the space and they, you know, troop up the stairs and never think about who's not in the space. And so I created this installation called Anti-Stairs Club Lounge that's an enclosed space on the ground floor. It's this little room. Um, and inside, so inside the lounge, there's seating, there's chilled seltzer, um, there's room for a wheelchair user to kind of maneuver around the space. There's some candy. There's a charging station for cell phones. There's reading materials. Um, so kind of any kind of like lounge amenities that I could think of. And then the way the, the lounge works is that in order to get access to the space, you have to sign in at the front desk, signing this little certification that you will not go upstairs in the exhibition space. So the lounge becomes exclusively for people who are staying on the ground floor. And there's a little kind of like keypad entry, um, Yeah. And so it's, you know, it's a little bit similar to what we were talking about. Like I think of disabled people or people who want to stay on the ground floor as kind of the core focus of that project. But I also think the experience that a non-disabled person has of it is really important, which might just be not going into the space and hopefully being prompted to think about kind of the accessibility of the space more broadly. Yeah, and it feels like you're kind of, you know, flipping the idea of exclusion or exclusivity, right? Like, you're making this lounge feel like a VVIP. Yeah. <laughs> you know, disabled people only. Yes, that, exactly. You know, disabled people, you lose out on this if you want to go upstairs. So it's really making it a loss for all the disabled folks who want to experience a lounge, but they can't if they go upstairs to supporting an inaccessible space. Exactly. It's like a nightclub. It's like, yeah. <laughs> uh, through the bouncer, through the velvet ropes, <laughs> you enjoy the uh, candy. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, it's a exclusion that's 
you feel isolated and, you know, basically, you know, infuriated, and hopefully, I think it sounds like you're creating a space, you know, for us, by us, which is actually really powerful. Yeah, no, exactly. That, that was my, my hope for the space. Again, you know, the title, Anti-Stairs, I think, you know, speaks to this idea that so many people just don't even think about stairs, you know, this is just like, yeah. it's just, you know, embedded in their everyday lives, and they don't think about it critically, or they don't even, you know, find it problematic, and, you know, I'm going to segue into another example of abominable stairs, uh, <laughs> and, you know, what I'm getting to, uh, you know, so very recently in New York City, there was a, a public structure called the Festival created by Thomas Hetherick and Hetherick Studios that opened as part of this Hudson Yards redevelopment project. And this thing cost like $200 million. Uh, it has 154 flights of stairs, almost 2,500 individual steps. It is described on its website as, quote, you know, a spiral staircase, a sorry new landmark meant to be climbed. So I'm really curious about your initial response to the vessel when you first learned of it and when you first saw it and whether you find this structure offensive to you as an artist or as a human being. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think it was interesting thinking about what my, it's interesting thinking about what my initial response was, because I think my initial response was kind of like an eye roll, you know, like, I think I just feel so used to being so used to inaccessible things and used to being disappointed. And then it was really like, the more that I thought about it and read about it, the angrier I became. Um, and I think a big part of that was that we're so often told that things can't be accessible because there isn't the budget. And so to have something that has a $200 million budget and isn't accessible mm -hmm. is pretty outrageous. And I think also I've been thinking a lot about public space and I think there's also this kind of like snowballing problem that happens where when there's a really high profile project like this that's inaccessible disabled people are pushed kind of farther out of the imagined public um and then that that kind of snowballs because then we're farther from the minds of architects, city planners, uh, you know, designers, event planners when they're creating new things. And so I think that was something else that was just felt really infuriating about this structure um, is that kind of erasure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it just seemed to be like another example of 
how design and architecture just perpetuates and reproduces data marginalization again. Yes. There's this technique, a very clear cultural message, social message, that some people are not thought of as the public. That exactly. are not counted, you know, or not even in, in their minds as, you know, potential visitors. And that says a lot about, you know, ableism in our society. And, you know, again, when I saw the first, like, you know, photos of the vessel, I mean, like you, I rolled my eyes, but <laughs> like it is a monstrosity because yeah. you know there's all these kind of like you know staircases. It just seemed very like bewildering and confusing, and you know really scary as well because it's there. You mentioned benches at uh, inside PCs, but there are no benches. As yeah. Yeah. So, I should imagine anybody, just children, older adults, like going up and down the vessel, and then what if they get tired? What if they yeah. trip? You know, like this is like to me like a huge like liability issue because it's going to be crowded. It's going to be like, you know, people just going up and down. And just what if something happens where? People need to stop and rest. Yeah. And that really scared me. And it really just, you know, made me so upset that, to think about visitors who might be just completely, not just wiped out, but just harmed by this. Yeah. And, you know, it's billed as a super shiny, sexy, like, you know, Instagram based. Yeah. Kind of <laughs> you know, thing to do, and it's just to me, it's just it's totally the opposite. And yeah, you know, somebody I remember on Twitter, because I tweeted like I was like really snarky about it, and then somebody was like, "Oh, it's accessible. There's an elevator." <laughs> and then I was like, "Actually, the elevator only goes up to the very top." So really, uh, somebody with uh, mobility disabilities or Anybody who wants to use the elevator won't be able to enjoy the entire structure, right? Because you only go yeah. from the bottom to the top. Yeah. That's not equality. That's not access to bye bye. I to- I mean I totally agree about the elevator. It it literally makes no sense. And it's you know, you can go to the top, but there's stairs on every level. So it's not like you get to the top and you can even move around at all because it's always up and down. And and then just it's clear from the way that it's talked about and the way that it's presented that it the whole experience is about climbing stairs. Mm-hmm. But I was really surprised at how powerful the phrase ADA compliant elevator is in terms of like washing away concerns about accessibility you know that was I saw that repeated over and over in articles and that there just wasn't the kind of interrogation of what that meant and actually like how that would function another thing is that they've said that the elevator is only for people who have I think the phrasing I heard was mobility needs which is also just like such a weird choice and pushes back against 
so many best practices around accessibility, but the idea that they're policing who can and cannot use it and like how they're making those choices and the kind of stigma and the burden that that puts on, I think, especially people with invisible disabilities. Um, just really, yeah. So you and a group of folks gathered up, you know, as you set up another anti-stairs club lounge uh, in front of the vessel where you distributed pledges to folks to ask them not to go up to the vessel. So what was that? You know, how did you organize that? And, you know, how did that go? Yeah, I mean, I think once I saw the plans for the vessel, I knew that I wanted to do an anti-stairs club lounge project there um, and and respond to it that way. Um, I think I was really thinking about, I think the best protest of the vessel is just to be together in public space and, and demonstrate how we want to use public space. Um, and so for me, some of those things are like lounging, chatting, hanging out, resting. Um, and so that was a big part of the lounge was like, we kind of took over these, um, this kind of bench and tables and chairs that were existing. And then I brought cushions and um, like reading materials and these bright orange beanies for people to wear. Um, and yeah, it was just, it was really wonderful. I think it was just really great to be, to bring a community together around this and, and just to get to hang out together. And I guess, you know, engaging with the public, especially those who are on their way to visit the vessel, um, you know, what were your thoughts in terms of the pledge and, you know, what disabled folks were asking in terms of just understanding that it's an inaccessible structure? You know, it's was very crowded. It was kind of like a Times Square-like environment. So a lot of people were just kind of like, there's the vessel, that's where I'm headed, and would kind of breeze by. A lot of people had a reaction which was kind of like, oh, I hadn't thought about this structure in terms of accessibility, but like now that you mention it, like, yeah, of course, it seems like that's really a problem. I understand why you're, why you're doing this. So, so that made a lot of, that felt good to have that reaction. There were definitely a few people who were kind of like, you know, a little bit dismissive or kind of like, didn't feel like what we were doing is, was important. But I think, again, it was like the most important thing for me was that like the people who gathered had a positive experience and, and that, um, had an opportunity to, to voice an objection to the vessel and then kind of the, the kind of outward facing part of that. Um, you know, I kind of felt like some people are gonna, this will shift some people's perspective of this, um, but maybe not everyone. Yes. You know, in a recent uh, Q&A with you and the choreographer slash dancer slash artists, Alice Shepard, uh, you said, you know, quote, there are many creative and excited ways to approach access that can be very generative. Uh, so why is it important for people to, to expand what access means and the idea that it could be a source of joy and beauty? 
Yeah, I think it's because the way that people treat accessibility is often the way that they treat disabled people. And so when they treat access as a burden, they're treating disabled people as a burden. Um, And when they treat access as a source of joy and beauty, then they start to understand, yeah, just the the joy and the beauty that's in our communities. That's perfect. I love that. You know, I totally agree with you like a thousand billion times. (laughs) Well, Shannon, thank you so much for being on my podcast today. Oh, my gosh. My pleasure. It, I mean, it's just so wonderful to, to talk with you about these things and things that you've also thought so deeply about. It's just really wonderful. This podcast is a production of the Disability Visibility Project. Doing all our community, dedicated to creating, sharing, and amplifying Disability media and culture. All episodes of Trinity Text Transcripts are available at disabilityvisibilityproject.com slash podcast. You can also find out more about Shannon's work on my website. If you are a producer for this episode, please be Dallas Wall. Introduction by the Team McFloud. Disney Music by Wilcher Sports Camp. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or Google Play. Do you also support our podcast for a dollar a month or more? Do you go to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash dvp. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash dvp. Thanks for listening. There's you on the internet.